Romans chapter 8. It is a little bit of a crime not to read the whole chapter each time that we will turn our attention to this chapter, but it is somewhat of a lengthy chapter. But I want to begin reading in verse 18, and we'll read down through the end of verse 27. It's Romans 8, verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. If I could just pause here, as we'll see in our treatment of it in a moment, we use the word creature often with reference to some type of animal, but it's the creation itself that is in view here for sure. So verse 20 reading, For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that, we see not. And we just pause, again, understanding the scriptural usage and reference of this term hope. Uh, we use it in a far lesser way in our common language. In scripture, it is an expectation. There's not an element of uncertainty in it. We use it with an element of uncertainty. But it's a more an element of expectation when it's presented to us in the scripture. There's no uncertainty in it. Verse 24, or verse 25. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. We'll end our reading there in verse 27. Again, trusting the Lord to add His own blessing to the public reading of His Word. As He's blessed already the reading of Philippians 3 together, taken back afresh as so often, but last Lord's Day and this most particularly with the similarity of theme and thought Philippians 2 with the opening part of chapter 8 that we looked at last time. And Philippians 3 certainly right down the line of the themes we've read of today. Let's do before we consider these words we've read. Bow our heads once again and our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we come thankful for the gift of God the Spirit. Lord, we come and pray that we might be mindful of His influence, of His work. We sing of that moving to stir, to draw, to quicken, teaching rebel hearts to pray. 
Lord, so many pieces of that we've read of today and certainly have need of the encouragement and, and challenge of these verses. So minister again to us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue to follow the apostle through his glorious exposition of the gospel here in Romans, and this gospel, I will add, I was thinking this week, I was taken back in the Bible reading in Philippians 3, this gospel of which he is not ashamed. You think of the life, the life experience of the Apostle Paul, how he excelled above many his equals in the Jewish religion. We saw him stating to the Philippians something of his credentials. He had a prominent and promising position among the Pharisees, to be sure. How many of those who rejected their Messiah in those synagogues of the Roman world would have seeked to have heaped shame upon the apostle for his abandonment of the faith in their blind thinking and following after this despised Jesus of Nazareth. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And it is this gospel, I say, he has been explaining, joyfully putting before his Roman readers. And as we have progressed into this glorious eighth chapter, we have noted already that the teaching and the emphasis of this chapter could well stand on its own. It is a chapter that, well, I checked, it's in itself longer than two or three I didn't check that specifically. Uh, but two or three of the other New Testament epistles are shorter than Romans 8. I say it could be a, an epistle in its own right. But as we noted last time, Romans 8 does have a context. It is an outflowing of the gospel that Paul is systematically and logically presenting to his readers and if you could bear with me again, just summarizing the chapters we've seen thus far after the first two chapters showing us our condemnation. In chapter 3, he speaks of justification. Chapter 4, he explains so powerfully that this justification is by faith. In chapter 5, he comes and explains again equally powerfully that it is by imputation. And then in chapters 6 and 7, he shows us that this gospel is not antinomian, Neither is it legalistic. And although he's certainly begun already to do so, as we can see something of what we call sanctification dealt with in chapters 6 and 7, he comes clearly in chapter 8 and glories in speaking of God's work of salvation, of this gospel as being work that God does for us and also work that God does in us. Well, last week we looked at verses 1 to 17, and we found there, if I could just repeat our little outline from there, that first Christ has satisfied every claim of the law against us. Secondly, that the Spirit delivers us from the control of the flesh. Thirdly, that the Spirit bears witness that we are heirs with Christ. And fourthly, as heirs, our inheritance in glory is certain. And if you read with me again verse 17 of our chapter, the last verse from last week, and if children, then heirs, 
Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. In some ways, Paul's survey of the gospel is complete. He's brought us to being glorified together with Christ. He could now begin to bring in the doxology or the doxologies that we yet await in the remaining chapters of Romans. This grace, this grace of the gospel story that he's been telling us. But there is more to tell. Before he speaks more of the glorious future, this chapter will take us, as we'll see, all the way back to eternity past, as we so feebly speak of it, but to that time that we read elsewhere in Scripture in which we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But he will not neglect, as we come, I say, to this glorious eighth chapter. He'll also not neglect to speak of the realities of the present as we await this certain and future glory. Notice in verse 17, in the midst of his record of this glorious assurance, they asked me last week the title of the sermon, I forgot to tell you. Grounds of Assurance was something of a title for last week's message. We just gave you the points and no theme, as it were. But I say he could take us with that understanding of assurance all the way to glorification, but he inserted a thought in verse 17. He said after recognizing us as joint heirs with Christ, he said, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And so instead of entering into one of the later doxologies, if you will, we then read verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so he prepares us for some thoughts about the present. He's going to prepare us for some thoughts about the difficulties, sorrows that accompany us in the present. But he prepares the soil by telling us as real, as varied, as deep and as hard as some of these may be, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory. And so in verse 18, Paul introduces a highly significant section of Scripture. He touches upon the realities of life in a fallen world. He touches upon them in ways that are not really comparable to other ways. There are hints here and there. But Paul just boldly says what is only hinted at in other places. And so we come today to give, in looking at the present, what I'll suggest to you today is a threefold testimony about us, about everything, waiting for glory. Waiting glory. I have frequently in our studies thus far 
announced my thoughts or points, if you will, uh, at the beginning of the message. I won't do so today, although they're quite simple and you can probably figure them out. There'll be a reason you'll find at the end for this. But so our first thought today I put before you is this. The groaning of creation. The groaning of creation. And this is in verse 19 to verse 22 of our reading together. The groaning of creation. One I read this week said this. Here, as nowhere else in the Bible or anywhere else in ancient literature, we see a man who feels the pain of creation. Feeling the pain of creation. As I said from our reading in verse 20 and 21, what we have translated here in our version as creature is not some animal, some unknown beast that hides from the cameras and will never be found. This is creation itself. This is the universe that groans as we read here. The groaning of creation. Here is a clear statement in Scripture of what is patently obvious. We don't have to have advanced degrees in various disciplines to understand if we have any experience in life at all. We can come to the realization of this even early in life as a small child. There's beauty. There's wonder in what we see. There's evidence of the Creator. There's such evidence as we've read in chapter 1 that all men are accountable to do something with this evidence. There's truth about God that is on display. I think of a phrase, I mentioned it to Jan as we were looking at the leaves somewhat this week. My mother often made the phrase, if the earth is this beautiful under the curse, what will it be in glory? It's true to be sure. There's beauty. There's evidence for the God of creation. There's wonder. But then as the hymn writer phrases it, change and decay in all around I see. It is obvious something is wrong. I remember my first day in class as a graduate student in an introductory course in systematic theology. The teacher after the introduction, the assignment sheet, we got into the first lecture. Who knows, maybe it was the second day. It was a few years ago. But he went into a pretty vivid description of life in the animal kingdom, of predators and prey. It was pretty graphic. I think he had rehearsed it pretty well. Maybe he'd seen some stunning science videos. Something ugly, something is wrong with this world. We don't see it now as the lion and the lamb sitting together. We don't see it now as not worrying about what's inside of that hole in the ground that your two-year-old has its arm 12 or 14 inches inside of. There's stuff to worry about now. And this is just a tip of an iceberg. 
of the horrors that sin has brought to this world. I'm tempted to give a description of a medical incident and really a crime. That a friend of ours from college days spoke of a case that had come to her father who was a physician. A parent who had left a child alone repeatedly all day in a crib. Neighbors finally called the police one day when the crying was abnormally awful. A rat was in the crib with the child. And her father couldn't save it. Something's wrong with the world. A curse has entered. And as we read the phrase, the creation, verse 20, was made subject to vanity. Interestingly, it's personified. Not willingly. Creation would yearn for something else. What it was originally designed for. This word vanity here is only used three times in the New Testament, one of which obviously is here. But it's used 37 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in just the book of Ecclesiastes. And of course, that's Solomon speaking to us of the vanity of life in a fallen world. He wasn't speaking of neglect and self-centeredness Crimes, predators, prey. Now Solomon was speaking about the best things of life. Architectural achievement, fame, prosperity, abundance. Even these things, they can't satisfy. Something's wrong. The creation groans. This discussion, discussion about several phrases in this passage will not wrestle with them all. But who is the one here, him who hath subjected the creation to this vanity? Suggest a little different punctuation in a moment for the phrases that follow. But clearly it's God that has subjected creation to vanity. Because the one that was to have dominion over creation has sinned. He has fallen in that which was to be a blessing to him. And now bears thorns. And it's with the sweat of his brow, it's with difficulty, it is with frustration that he makes his way in this fallen creation. Creation groans. It doesn't groan without hope. This one that has subjected creation to vanity in hope. Because or in hope that, if we could suggest from verse 20 to 21, in hope that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The curse that has come upon creation, man's stated dominion, is waiting for something. Paul actually uses a, a double compound Commentators pause to point it out in verse 18 
in verse 23 and also verse 25. This waiting. There's an expectation. Earnest expectation. Verse 19 of the creation. Waiting for the manifestation. And notice this. The manifestation of the sons of God. The groaning of creation. The world is waiting for another day. And it's interesting and certainly what it waits for is certainly attached to. It is upgirded by. It is founded upon the coming of Christ. That glorious day of His appearing. But it's interesting, Paul uses eschatological terms here. The manifestation. The revelation of the sons of God. I don't want to get overly sidetracked here. Anytime there's a bomb dropped in the Middle East, some dispensationalist prints a new book. I've seen two commercials this week from two notable prophecy preachers in our nation. The one even used special effects to show the rapture. I won't... I believe in the rapture. A lot of people that know me don't think I do. It's because they don't read the whole book. But anyway, the revelation of the sons of God. What is the significance, if my view is right, and the church isn't taken out before the troubles of the last days, but we're here through those troubles. Well, what's the point then if Jesus just comes back and we're still here? What's the point of being caught up to meet him with the air if we're not going from the air to heaven? My reply to that is why does he have to come to the air? Why don't he just take us all the way to heaven without the pit stop in the middle? The revelation of the sons of God. And if you look at the word Paul uses in Thessalonians about meeting the Lord in the air, it's a specialized term with reference to going forth to meet a dignitary that's on his way to come to where you are. You go to meet him as he's approaching in order to join him and accompany him the rest of the way to his coming to you. But he's bringing those that have gone before with him. And we're going to be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. There's great significance to that. The identification of Christ and His people. And here we will see for the first time the united church glorified at that point because there is the translation of living believers. There's the resurrection of the bodies of dead saints. It's a manifestation of this redeemed body of humanity. When Jesus is revealed, we're revealed with Him. We who were to have dominion, a kind, happy, sinless dominion over the works of His hands, The creation itself is groaning, waiting for that day. Waiting for the day in which the sons of men can walk the new earth with no fear. 
no mystery of what virus the next mosquito will bring. All the other sad and varied pieces of the fall that creation and all within it bear. Creation is groaning because something's wrong. Sin's here and it wasn't supposed to be. But it's not groaning hopelessly. It's waiting. It's expecting. It's been subjected to vanity but in hope. And hope of being delivered from this bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty that will come even to it in the manifestation, the revelation of the sons of God. Secondly, we find in our portion from verses 23 to 25 the groaning of the believer. We read verse 23, and not only they but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. I was speaking to a dear brother at the faculty summit meeting this summer. I was able to attend again. He is a consistent Armenian, a studious and humble soul. We've had some good days of fellowship. He asked me a question about things from 10 years ago we discussed. But I mentioned to him in <coughs> discussing the question, think of Romans 8. This chapter that is so filled with assurance. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And yet it's in such a chapter like this that ends with this glorious explanation of never being separated from Him. It's in the middle of that chapter that we read about our groaning. There is the groaning even of the believer. Sadly, we might even say ironically, some of those that are outside of Christ don't do a lot of groaning. They're happy with life in a fallen world. They just don't Think through all of the ramifications of the fall and really wrestle through what real happiness is all about. It's part of the blindness of the depraved heart. But here the groaning of the believer. But notice how we're described. Not only they or it, the creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting. There's the emphasized word again. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. How are we thus described? Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. I said in our opening thoughts that Paul is moving through the whole of the Gospel. He's not just focusing on justification itself alone. That's the, the legal foundational part. That's how God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. 
But those that believe in Jesus have more in this salvation than mere, can we speak this way, mere justification. There's work done for us. But there's work that's done in us and is still being done in us and will ultimately in that final day be finished in us. And so there's the groaning of the believer. As we think here of the phrasing of verse 23, it shows us some of those gospel words that we have to put in context. If you want to, you know, get a strange glance out of a seminary student, ask them, you know, a trick question. It's amazing how long a student can dwell over a simple true-false question. Because they got all this in the back of their head. What is he really getting at? You got to read between the lines. And sometimes that's true. Professors can get mean. Well, one of those trick questions is, are we saved or are we being saved? The answer is yes. Because sometimes Scripture speaks of our salvation as something that's accomplished. And sometimes it speaks of our salvation as something that's going to be accomplished. Well, adoption. We have the Spirit bearing witness. We've read already in the portion from last week that we are the sons of God. It's a position that was already ours. We're adopted. We're His. We're in the family. But there's something in that adoption that's not finished yet. Adoption is present and future. Redemption. The adoption, that is, the redemption of our bodies. Well, redemption is present. We're redeemed. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ out of that slave market of sin. We're His purchased possession. But yet there's a part of redemption that we don't possess yet. And the Christian can say to that, Amen. Because the desires of the new heart and the new man that wrestle against the old man that's not yet gone He's not dominant anymore. But every now and then, and you know it's a defeated enemy that has the most vicious attacks because the attacks are not with any hope of winning the war anymore. They're just to insult and injure. And that's how the devil and the flesh often attack the children of God. Just to insult and injure. But there's a redemption will come the redemption of our bodies he will change our vile bodies that it will be fashioned like unto his glorious body see apostle john describes it it doesn't yet appear what we shall be he says brethren now are we the sons of god <laughs> adoption but it does not yet appear what we shall be there's pieces of this that we don't know all the details Hallelujah. There's stuff that will be a glorious surprise to us. But we know there's no uncertainty in this gospel hope. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him.
but we shall see Him as He is. So this one who ascended through the sky, visibly, to the right hand of the Father, will so come in like manner as we have seen Him go, we caught up together with Him, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Resurrection. That is when we come to the fullness of experience of what we already legally possess. I know I've phrased this to you in different ways along the way before, but understand this in this life, we look at sinners plainly described as dead in trespasses and sins. We meet them on the street. They have a pulse. Their eyes are open. They speak to us. They seem to be somewhat alive. They haven't yet entered into the fullness of experience of the position of condemnation that they currently occupy. Well, so it is for us. We're made alive. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And these are tangible. Our thoughts, our desires, our actions are different than they once were. They're not yet perfect. We're not yet completely like our risen Christ. And that's the part we groan about. We yearn for the day in which that work will be completed in us. Not yearning with any uncertainty, but waiting. And so it is with us. It's not until the resurrection that we will enter into the fullness of the experience of the position that is already ours. And so there's the groaning. Could we say that expecting that mingled groaning. It's not hopeless. It's just waiting. It's anticipating that final day. So our passage speaks of the groaning of creation and the groaning of the believer. We come thirdly then. This is why I said I didn't want to announce the simple titles of our points today. Because it would be tempting, it would even be homiletically consistent to entitle the third section of the chapter, or our passage, verses 26 and 27, to be the groaning of the Spirit. But yet that's anticipating the answer to a question that we have to wrestle with. Because as we read together verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Well, Kimbrough, it's just right there. The groaning of the Spirit. Third point. It's all nice and fits. Except there's a question. Is the groaning of verse 26 the Spirit groaning or is it us? And I think, and we'll not wrestle through all the particulars here, but I think that it is still our groaning that is in view 
in verses 26 and 27. It's just that this groaning and expectation, we don't go through that alone. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We're changed people. What God has done for us is not left alone. He's working in us. We're dead to sin. Legally and experientially, chapter 6, we're dead to the law, and yet the law's still good. It just you can't justify or sanctify us, but what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that we, to begin paraphrasing now, might live a new life in the Spirit. And so here we come to this divine indwelling, to this divine assistance. There are many that bring several things out of this portion. Those of charismatic persuasion want to bring us to the gift of tongues. And that once we're filled with the Spirit, we can pray in stuff that Regular people can't understand, and we don't understand either. And yet Paul said that if you speak in tongues, biblical tongues, you've got to interpret and tell other people what's being said. And we read in Acts of those tongues that were given being languages of known tongues. Of, I don't think Paul is talking here about ecstatic, unintelligible speech. The Spirit... That comforter brought alongside believers. That indwelling spirit that convinces us, yes, first of sin, but then convinces us that we're redeemed and the children of God. There are points in our journey. There are points in the now. That time, that life that's in between our conversion, our justification, and our glorification, where we're going to struggle. It may be, as we see in chapter 6, 7, and 8, struggle with sin. And we groan because of that. We could even say with Paul, as the occasion arises, wretched man that I am. But yet remember there's victory in that verse. Who shall deliver us? I thank God. There's deliverance. We may groan because of sin. We may groan because of trial. Trials that... Well, God's put a whole book in His Word about dealing with inexplicable trials. As we read that amazing book of Job. And how sometimes well-meaning people can misinterpret all those trials and give us a lot of unhelpful stuff. There may be times in such occasions, whether it is with trials, circumstances, need, physical struggle, sinful struggle, that we come to the point where we run out of language we run out of defined terms. It is here that the Spirit of God comes alongside us. These groanings, 
which represent thoughts, feelings, realities that we can't articulate how limited we are. The Spirit intercedes. The Spirit helps. I was really tempted to steal an outline I heard from Reverend John Greer, former clerk of our Northern Irish Presbytery. It was a lot of years ago. There was no gray in the whiskers when this sermon was preached. But he had a wonderful outline on these verses of Romans 8. The infirmity of the saint. The intercession of the spirit. Maybe he said the intervention of the spirit. The invincibility of the supplication. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You can go in Scripture and see examples of times where giants of the faith struggled with what to pray. Times where giants of the faith prayed the wrong thing. Paul said three times, I asked the Lord. He had good motives. Lord, I'm serving you. This is a hindrance. If I just felt better, just think how much more I could do. And the Lord said, Stop praying about that. My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Moses prayed to enter the land. God said no. Elijah. Jonah, we can assume. We're going to look at Jonah in a few weeks in our Sunday evenings. There are almost countless examples of seasons of life now in a world that's groaning, in the groaning of our own hearts that we, we come to reach the end of ourselves. Lord, what are you doing? How am I ever going to be delivered from this? How's this problem out there in the church or in the world ever going to get solved? Spirit comes alongside. We come to the point we can't even frame the words. The Lord says that's okay. Just know this. I understand. Everything I do is right. And as we'll read in a moment or seven days from now, Lord willing, all things work together for good. Because there's a God who's bigger than us. A God who's bigger than the creation that is working his plan of redemption. And Paul is glorying in explaining this gospel to the Romans. And as I say, when he's come to that point already in this chapter where he says we are joint heirs with Christ, we're going to be glorified together with him but there's this not yet that we have to live through. 
and the whole creation, and we ourselves, even as believers, are groaning, but we're waiting, expecting another day. And God's Spirit, His indwelling, comforting Spirit, is making intercession when we can't even find the words to explain to God how we even understand the problems. He's on the throne. And he comforts us. These things we've already received of the Spirit are just the first fruits. We didn't pause. We should have. The first fruits of the Spirit. What were the first fruits? A whole feast in Israel's specific calendar of feasts. The first fruits were the guarantee of the whole harvest. And it's interesting that in the gospel, it takes what was an Old Testament picture and type, Israel's presentation of those first fruits to God. God's given us in the gospel the gift. He's given us the first fruits, the promise that the whole thing is going to be fixed. We have now just the first fruits of the Spirit. But that's what enables us to grow in grace. It's what enables us to live now because our groaning is not hopeless, it's expectant. It's joyfully expectant of the coming day. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask. We can speak of circumstances and feelings that we can't finally frame into the right words as we would pray. Lord, we sense that as we would come to preach something of these words from Romans 8. By your Spirit, teach, take up that which preachers can't, and minister grace, joyful, expectant grace to the hearts of your people today. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.